Father, we gather here today for worship. But Father, I pray that our worship just didn't start when we walk in this building. I pray, Father, that our lives be lives of worship. That we give unto you that which you deserve with everything that we do in every minute of our lives. Father, that we don't separate what people want to call the sacred from the secular. Father, everything is sacred. Everything we do has, has, has significance in the spiritual realm. We know that your word says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Father, we need help in doing that. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, if you want to follow along, I'll be in the book of Mark today, chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel. And I'll be starting at verse 22. When we start at verse 22, leading into this, Jesus has just told the twelve that one of them is going to betray Him. Then we see verse 22 saying, And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out again? Come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I'm going to focus on verse 50 as my starting point today. And they all left him and fled. Here's how some other translations translate the words that come into English in that verse, though. The Lexham English says they all abandoned him. The New King James, the King James, the Revised Standard all say they all forsook him. Christian Standard says they all deserted him. Berean Standard says everyone deserted him. So why do I cite the other translations? Is the ESV wrong? No, it's not wrong. The, the ESV says what it says. The New American Standard says the same thing as the ESV. The Legacy Standard says the same thing. And even Young's Literal from prior centuries says the same thing. They all left him. But it doesn't seem as though, in my mind, to help me, it doesn't convey the weight of what actually happened here. Someone can come over to your house and then you can tell somebody, well, so-and-so was here and they left after three hours. That's not the same as saying they deserted me after three hours or they abandoned me after three hours because it carries a different weight. This was just not a casual separation like when people go home at the end of the workday or when you may go home after the fellowship at James's place in a couple days on the 4th. There's just a different weight here to what happened in verse 50 when they all left him. And I even think that when, when the King James and the New King James um, and the Revised Standard used the word forsook, because we know what Scripture says about what Jesus will not do with us. He will not leave us or what? Forsake us. There's two different words there. Leave or forsake. Forsake has a different sense than just leaving. And what happened here is they forsook him. They deserted him. That's a military image, isn't it? They deserted. They abandoned. In this moment, in this trial, after what all happened in all those verses I read before that, and you've got Peter saying what Peter says there, what happens in verse 50? They all left. All the eleven who are now here at this point. And where am I going with all this? I'm going to the place where Jesus loved these men. And I'm going to go to the passages where it talks about Jesus loving these men. And you think about the love that Jesus had for these men and the things that He did in the presence of these men and the things that He did for these men. And He really, really, really loved them. And my point I want to make today is, kind of, love can be dangerous. And let me explain this. I think I've read this before, and I'm going to read it again, even if I have read it before. It's a quote from an author. It's taken out of a context of, of a book on love. And, and you might be sitting here thinking, well, why did he say love can be dangerous? Well, let me try and, let me try and flesh this out for you. The title of my message is, The Dangers of Love, They're All Worth It. 
Now, here's the quote from this, this book. This author says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Now you think about what does he say here? He says, and and I'm going to make a substitution of the heart for it here. He says, if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, what is he talking about? If you want to make sure that your heart is never broken, in any way, shape, or form. If you want to make sure that that happens, that you never get hurt, you must give your heart to no one. Don't even give your heart to your dog because your dog's going to die and your heart's going to be broken. Wrap your heart carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Let's bring this into the Christian realm. Wrap up your heart with works. Do a lot of stuff, but never really love people. You can mask a lack of love by just outward works. You don't get involved. You don't, get, you don't let people get involved in your life. You don't let people bring you into their life. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness because you don't want to get hurt. You take your heart. You lock it up so it can't be cracked. It can't be broken. It can't be harmed in any way, shape, or form. But the point here is he makes. I think it's valid. Once you do that, the state of your heart's going to change. Your heart will not be broken if you lock it up and never never take that risk. Your heart's going to become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You're going to have a hardened heart. And his, his point here is, when he says the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell, there's no love in hell. So there's no danger there. You have nothing but love in heaven. Perfect love, absolute love, unchanging love. Heaven is a world of love, Jonathan Edwards. But in this realm, in this age, when we love people, it can be dangerous because our heart can be broken. Whether it is shattered or just a little crack, in this age, loving people is putting yourself out there on the front lines. It's putting your soul out there on the front lines. It's putting your emotions. It's putting your mind. It's, it's, putting, it's putting that which is you out there because things happen. You know it. Things happen that cause your heart to be troubled. Things happen that cause your heart to be hurt. Things happen that cause your heart to be broken. So that's what he's going to in this essay. There's danger here. But if you want to play it perfectly safe, lock it up in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
Don't lock your heart up in a casket or coffin of selfishness. Leave your heart open. Leave your heart open to being hurt because you have to love people. And it has to be more than just a saying, okay, I love. This means getting involved. This means exposing yourself. This means bringing, bringing risk into things. I know, I know in, in our realm nowadays, everybody wants everything to be perfectly safe. You know, my, my generation and, and, so, and generations after mine, we raise our kids and we want everything in the world to be perfectly safe. And we see what's happened now with raising children. We've, we've locked up our children in, in this bubble and then they grow up and now they're 40 years old. The calendar says they're 40 years old, but their emotions in their heart are still eight. We haven't let people grow. We have, in our, in our, in our quest to make this world and the lives of people and children perfect and perfectly safe where nobody gets hurt. You know, the whole everybody gets a trophy at the end of the tournament sort of thing. Nobody wins and nobody loses. Everybody just participates. That's not real life. People win and people lose in real life. Jesus dealt with real life, did he not? He dealt with the realities of life in relationships with people. And so are we to do the same thing. Because people are going to hurt you. You know it. I know it. People are going to make you cry. People are going to do things that make you mad. They may do it intentionally. They may do it unintentionally. But it happens and it hurts. And it doesn't matter what the source of the hurt is. Because pain is still pain. In verse 50 here, these guys, the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, loved, ran. They all left him and fled. We know that Peter had just said, maybe those other guys will, but I won't. Peter ran too. But we know that this was not an absolute abandonment because we know that a few verses later we've got Peter following Jesus into the court of the high priest. But he's keeping his distance, of course. And we also know that when he was crucified, there were people there, but not many. Where were the crowds that were waving the palm branches within the last week? All these people crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where were they when that man hung on that cross? They weren't there. Were they in the crowd that had said, crucify him? Jesus had come into the city on that donkey as they're waving the palm branches, as they're saying, Hosanna. And then right after that, he overlooks the city. And what does he do? He weeps. He's weeping for those people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Because he loved people. And he loved people knowing that people were going to let him down. People were going to hurt him. Remember, Jesus was a man. Let's, let's not take our doctrine of the incarnation to a place where we think Jesus is just some stoic who does not have human emotions, human feelings. What did he do when his friend Lazarus died? He gets there. John 11, John 11, 5 tells us he loved Lazarus. He gets there. Lazarus has been dead a few days now. He gets there. He encounters Mary. Scripture says his soul was greatly troubled and he wept. 
and you do your word study there in that account and you see that there's a sense of he's angry about this. Why would you be angry about this? Because death is not the way it was meant to be at the beginning. It hurts when your friends die. We are not people who are emotionless. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he doesn't say about the dead Christians, don't mourn them. He says, don't mourn like other people mourn. This is how you are to mourn. Mourning is biblical. Sadness is biblical at death. Grief is biblical over things being not the way that they were at creation. And Jesus has very human interaction with humans. And He responds in a human way, but He never responds in a sinfully human way. But He did respond. He did interact with people. He loved people. And He tells us to love people as well. None of the four Gospels here, in this, when they're going here around this account, none of them tell us Jesus' emotional response to this. What was it? I don't know. But where I'm going with this is, what do we do when Mark 14.50 happens in our lives and people hurt us? Because Jesus has been there. Remember, He's, he's, he's lived life just like us. He did it all without sin in word, thought, or deed. And when, when somebody writes the account of your life and says on such and such a day, you got hurt by so-and-so, Jesus gets it. When, when someone hurts you, He gets it. He can empathize with you. And I use empathize here instead of sympathize for a reason. Because sympathy, to overgeneralize, has just to do with feeling sorry for somebody. But empathy goes farther. You put yourself in their shoes. You can identify with them. Jesus can identify with your hurt when somebody hurts you. And, and almost everything I'm going to be saying this morning is about people hurting you, but I have to issue the admonition, be careful you're not the one hurting other people. It's a two-way street here. But Jesus loved these men who ran in verse 50. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Three verses later, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then Jesus spends pretty much the entirety, the majority of John 17, praying for these men. And right after that, they all left him and fled. Your Savior knows what it's like to be hurt, to be stabbed in the back, to have those people who were waving the palm branches, Hosanna, few days later, crucify Him. He gets it. He can identify with your pain. He knows. He knows that when we love people, the love is not always returned. Or the love may break. Jesus knows 
that when you love people, they may say, do, think things about you or to you that are unloving. But did Jesus stop loving them? He didn't. Did he take a season off or a sabbatical from loving people because they hurt him? No. When they looked at him and they rejected his message, they come to him looking for salvation, the rich young man. Mark 10.21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Then he tells him what he needs to do to follow him. And the rich young man walks away disheartened. Love doesn't always turn out the way that we want it to turn out in this age. So how do we react? What do you do when you get hurt? Some people respond well. Others don't. Do we respond like the essay? Take your heart, put it up in a casket or coffin. Don't let anything in. And it's going to sit in there and it's going to petrify. Is that how Scripture wants us to respond to hurt? It doesn't. But to love is to be vulnerable. As the author says, I know it's not Scripture, but I believe it to be true. You look at the point that the author's making there in that essay. If, if we choose to take our heart, lock it up, don't let anybody in, don't give it any chance of being hurt, are we obeying and imitating Christ at that point? We are not. If you choose to not really love people, regardless of their response to you, are you being like Christ? If you choose to not really love the brethren, how does that match up with one of the litmus tests for whether or not a person is really a Christian? 1 John 2. How does that match up with Jesus saying, how are people going to know that you are His disciples? By your love for one another. But let's go to 1 John 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to turn here. John. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. But, and, whoever hates his brother is where? They're in the darkness. And they walk in the darkness. And if you back up to chapter 1, okay, chapter 2 says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Chapter 1, he has just said that if a person says they have fellowship with the Father, but they walk in the darkness, they lie and do not practice the truth. And you know from my last sermon, the end of your Bible says about liars and people who practice falsehood, their place is in the lake of fire. Be careful. But, but it goes beyond loving the brethren. Yes, loving the brethren matters. But what about the lost? What about your lost mother? What about your lost sister? Your lost boss? Your lost neighbor whose dogs bark all night long 20 feet from your window as you're trying to sleep? Do you love them? And really love them? We know anybody has the capacity to hurt us. And they have that capacity whether they're lost or redeemed. But how does Christ model love for us? 
He loved. End of thought. He loved. He loved people enough to go to that cross almost alone. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. Hebrews tells us He endured the cross, despised the shame, but for the joy that was set before Him. Again, don't think for a minute that just because Jesus knew what He came for and what He was going to go through, it didn't hurt. Read Gethsemane. This was real. That when a man prays with such intensity and the state of his soul is such that he sweats like great drops of blood, this is real. This is a human being doing this here. Yes, a man who is fully human and fully God. As a man, what does Scripture tell us that he did? He grew in wisdom and stature. He got tired. John 4, that's why he was at the well and encountered the woman, because he was tired. As a man, he works in anonymity for 30 years. As a man, he honored his father and mother. And as a man, he wept when he encountered Mary at the death of his friend Lazarus. However much hurt you have in your life, Jesus Christ can identify with it. And He can identify with it at a far greater level than you and I can imagine. Mark 14.50, they left Him and fled. Jesus had just told them earlier, verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Quote Zechariah 13 there. And again, not only Peter... But they all, they all said the same. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's verse 31. 19 verses later, they all left him and fled. He gets it. He gets it. Far more than we can get, then he gets it. And when you get hurt, you're not the first person who's ever been hurt in human history. I know that may sound overly, overly elementary or, or basic, but it's true. Because people can tend to think, nobody knows what it's like to be hurt like me. Scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. People have been hurt just like you. People have been hurt less, they've been hurt the same, and they've been hurt more. So it's not the first time hurt has entered into people's lives. One thing, one thing we have to be careful with, what do we do with our hurt? This is going to sound crazy, but you can make an idol out of your pain. Jeff, you have no idea how much it hurts. It hurts worse than anyone else's could. Be careful. Don't place your hurt at a level outside the grace of God and the truth of God. I don't pretend to know what people have done to you in your life. One thing I learned really early on in the prison is to never say I understand because I don't. But I know people get hurt. People get hurt by people who are brethren. People get hurt by people in this room. We can hurt and probably have hurt people in this room. But people have undergone hurt. It's not new, but what do we do with it? Aren't we to respond the way Christ responds to hurt, to rejection? You can, you can imagine all the near-endless possibilities for getting hurt by people you love. 
You may get hurt intentionally or unintentionally, but again, it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or unintentional. Hurt is hurt. Pain is pain. We don't want to minimize people's hurt because it's not our hurt or our pain. You know, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, spiritual pain, relational pain, whatever, pain is pain and it hurts. But how did Jesus respond? That's what we have to look at here. You know, I talk about unintentional pain. Okay, When your dog dies, your dog does not die with the intent of breaking your heart. But it might. And you might respond by saying, I'm never getting another dog. I get it. But you have to be careful that that doesn't then flow over into other areas of your life. We don't have a biblical command in the sense that we have of loving your neighbor like loving your dog in the same way or loving the brethren. But somebody may inadvertently break your heart. What do you do? Do you do the same thing and say, I'm never having another relationship like that again with one of the brethren? I don't want to get hurt again. Again, that's playing it unbiblically safe. That's taking your heart and locking it up and never exposing it to the realities of what the Christian life is supposed to look like in this age. But we have to deal with the realities of life in this age. Because maybe you're okay, you're female, you got some friend, okay? Okay, and you're you're as tight with that friend of yours as those stilettos that sit in your closet and they're one size too small. And you've been like this for years. And something happens. Whether it's small or big. But it hurts. It breaks your heart. And you say, never again. I'm moving on. Is that what Christ wants you to do with relationships within the family of God since you've all been adopted into the family of God by the spirit of adoption? Didn't Jesus Christ come not only to reconcile men to God, but to enable reconciliation between God's people? Why do you want to cast that person aside because they've hurt you? Jesus didn't cast people aside just because they hurt Him. Be careful when you say never again on something like that. You know, did, did our Lord ever get hurt? Maybe hurt's not the right word. Did, did people ever grieve the Lord? Yeah, I give you the first three quarters of this book. How often do we see Israel doing that? Oh, they repent. Yeah, they repented. Well, that didn't last long. Then they fall into sin. They fall into idolatry. They're called to repentance. They repent. And you've got this cycle throughout Genesis through Malachi. It keeps happening over and over and over and over again. And what do we see the psalmist saying? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He set His love on a, steadfast, on a stiff-necked people. And they kept showing themselves to be stiff-necked. Israel grieved our Lord, and it was, it was real grief. I know in the Reformed camp, we could get into an argument over the impassibility of the Lord, the fact that confessions say that the Lord has no passions, 
and that the passages in Scripture that say the Lord had sorrow, He grieved, He was joyous, He was angry, that those are all nothing but mere anthropopathisms, figures, figures of speech to describe something which the Lord really can't do or be because, well, we've got this doctrine of the Lord's immutability over here, and if that's true, well, He really can't be grieved by anything. I think Scripture gives us all of those passages where the Lord is said to have these divine emotions for a reason because He really does have divine emotions. He's made us in His image. We are not impassable. Our God of the Bible is not the God of Islam who is impassable. Our God can be grieved. Our God can be joyous. Our God can sing with joy over His people. Zephaniah 3.17 Our God does have divine emotions. Even a guy, even a guy like Robert Raymond, who's as classic a Reformed theologian, a classic Reformed Presbyterian as you can get, who would say the Westminster Confession of Faith is absolutely true. Even Raymond says this, because Raymond submits to Scripture. Raymond says everywhere, quote, He, the Lord, is depicted as one who registers grief and sorrow over and displeasure and wrath against sin and its ruinous effects, and as one who is in compassion and love has taken effective steps in Jesus Christ to reverse the misery of men. Everywhere he is portrayed as one who can and does enter into deep, authentic, interpersonal relations of love with his creatures and as a God who truly cares for his creatures and their happiness. End quote. Praise God. Paul is right, Ephesians 4.30, carried along by the Spirit when he says we can grieve the Spirit. It's divine grief. It's real. It's not a bare anthropopathism. But even so, Jesus still loves us. Our God loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's real divine love. How about His love for us before we were saved? Predestined for adoption as sons before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. There's just Father, Son, and Spirit. You were predestined. Not by a flip of the divine coin. You were predestined in love. And love that still abides today even as He knew all the foolish things you were going to do. I want you to take just a few seconds. Think, think about all of the stupid things you did when you were lost. All of the nonsense. Those crazy things you can look back and go, why didn't I die? Why'd the guy next to me die? Why didn't this or this happen to me as a consequence of what I did? And then think about the stupid things you've done since you were born again. Just take. I'm going to give you a few seconds. This is not bare, <laughs> a bare rhetorical question. I want you to think about it for a few seconds. Just think about it.
and what you remembered, you probably forgot a lot. Our Lord doesn't forget. He knows. And He still loves you. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because whatever your list looks like, Jesus loved you in all eternity before there was time. And He still loves you today. He even loved Peter, verse 50. He loved the other ten besides Peter who ran. They ran. They abandoned. They deserted. They forsook. He told them they were going to do it. They said no. And then they fulfilled it. I'm telling you, people are going to hurt you. I don't intend to hurt people, but I know I can and I know I have. What do we do with it? Do we respond like Christ? Or do we respond by saying, I'm moving on. I don't need this anymore. i got to have it safe. No. Reconciliation is what matters here. Didn't the Spirit inspire Paul to write in his letter to the Philippians to have two women agree in the Lord? Euodia and Syntyche? And, and I don't believe it's just bare... Okay, let's agree on this point. I believe it has to go deeper and be rooted in love for each other. It's like when it's like when you're 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 a parent. Okay? And 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 Sarah hits Hannah hypothetically. Okay? And you tell Sarah, tell Hannah you're sorry. And Sarah marches up to Hannah and goes, I'm sorry. Now, does she really mean it? No, she's checking a box so she can move on. I don't believe here that in Philippians, Paul just wanted Yodia and Syntyche to check a box and move on. I believe he wanted reconciliation in the relationship, not just agreement on a point. Same with us. We need to not just have agreements on points so we can check boxes. We need to have, yes, agreement on points. And there are times we're going to disagree on some things, but even whether we agree or disagree on some things, can we not have real true love for the person with whom we've had the disagreement? Yes, we can. I know that when you bear your soul to someone and then your soul gets ripped apart, it, it hurts. I believe that's why Scripture uses the image, especially in the Old Testament, of, of sexual immorality being equated with Israel's spiritual adultery. You know, when a man and woman make that commitment to each other in marriage, they become one. They're not two in that sense. They're one. They're one in a way that they weren't before. And what does adultery do to that marriage? It tears a hole in that which is one, and it hurts. And we get it. And we get, the, we get the hurt. We get the pain. Images matter in Scripture. We know how much that hurts people, or if you've been hurt by it, you get it. But, but, no matter how much it hurts, what are you doing with that? Again, I go back to, I can't pretend to know what's happened to you in the past. There are, okay, with going back to 1996, all these stories about 
what's happened with the guys that I encountered and the women we encountered in prison. My wife won't let me tell some of the stories, even in private conversations sometimes. So yes, image bearers can do terrible things to other image bearers. But even in light of that, how are you responding as one who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? And you say you're filled with the Holy Ghost. That one who's taken out that who's had that heart of stone taken out by some divine heart transplant and been replaced with a heart of flesh. How is your past affecting your present love? I mean, I, I won't tell the whole story, but I can tell you there's a guy who let something that happened to him when he was seven or eight years old affect his life for 40 years. His anger and bitterness at it. He's a professing Christian. Would he let people into his life though? He would not. Because he had 40 years of hurt. I mean, he dealt with it one day in a pretty dramatic way. But that's not just for guys that we might know on the other side of the fence. There are people in rooms like this, maybe in this room today, who are still in that same situation. You know, you're a woman. Some guy coerced you into getting an abortion. What have you done with it? Are you still, are you still not dealt with it after all these years? Are you letting that affect your life now, today, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years later? Do you hate that man so much that you've taken your heart, you've locked it up in this little coffin? It's safe, but it's going to petrify. I think you want to let your heart out. I think you want to let your heart out and expose your heart, again, to dangers of love. Jesus exposed His heart, His life, to men, to women. And they hurt Him. But He always responded well. And we who have the Spirit are enabled and equipped to respond well. But think about it. Is there something holding you back from entering into fellowship with brethren? Because you're just going, I'm not... No, I'm backing up. I'm not going there because I don't want to get hurt again. I don't think that's what Scripture describes the Christian life as. Scripture wants you to keep walking forward and entering into relationships with people. You think about, I'll close with this, Stephen. Stephen needed to be converted, just like us. Stephen gets converted. What happens? He gives a speech, a lecture, a sermon whatever you want to call it, a discourse. He tells men nothing but truth. How do they respond to the message? They want to kill him. Very Christ-like. You tell people truth and some people want to kill you. He's at the end of his message. And what happens at the end of his message? He looks up. He sees Christ, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God as the heavens opened. Do you think Stephen could affirm the line from the song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus? I think he could. Don't you want to store up treasure in heaven? You know, 
Tim talked Wednesday night about the basis for judgment in Scripture is always works. It's true. That doesn't mean justification is by works. It means the basis for the judgment is always works. And it's be, you know, it doesn't matter if we clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and visit those in prison, using the three examples that we see in Matthew 25. Yes. But our works also include obeying commands like loving your neighbor, loving the brethren. You also store up treasure in heaven by obeying those commands, by doing those works. Doesn't Revelation say something about our clothing and works? We're equipped to do this, even when it's hard, even when it's dangerous. And I think you're going to find that if you examine yourself and find you have not been doing this, that you've been sheltering your heart in a way that is unbiblical, that if you then expose your heart to relationships with people, you're going to be blessed, even as you might get hurt sometimes. Because God blesses obedience. He does. He blesses His people when they're obedient. Jesus Christ loved people. We ought to imitate Christ. Love people even when it's dangerous. Let's pray. Father, Father, I thank You that You have loved us in all eternity. You loved us. In time and space, You loved us. You redeemed us. You sent Your Son for us. He came for us. He came with His food being to do Your will. Father, He came and He loved us. And He still does today. Father, help us. Help us by Your Spirit to imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.